Have you ever felt like God was impossibly far away? Like you longed to know God in some tangible way, but you just couldn't figure out how? Or maybe you're someone that loves reading and studying and understanding God in a theoretical or cerebral way, but your body just feels like this thing getting in the way of your mind. Perhaps your relationship to God and your relationship to your body are actually pretty good, but community feels really hard to find. Whatever your experience of God and your body and community may be, I believe that God longs to commune with you through the bread broken together in community. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different here on Kitchen Meditations. Rather than sharing a traditional episode, I'm excited to read for you from my new book, Buy Bread Alone, A Baker's Reflections on Hunger, Longing, and the Goodness of God, which releases this Tuesday. You can order your copy through the link in our show notes. That way you can read the rest of the story in just a few days. I hope you enjoy. I was five years old when I stole my first communion. Our church, Richardson Heights Baptist, was celebrating its 40th anniversary. We were meeting in a local high school auditorium to accommodate all the members and guests who had come to mark the occasion. For us, it was a family celebration as much as a church party marking 40 years since my grandparents had married just a month before planting the church. At the service, attendees overflowed the seating in the auditorium. As a result, my siblings and cousins and I sat in the aisle next to a box of communion-to-go cups, shots of grape juice with a cracker attached at the top, all sealed together with plastic. This wasn't the usual manner by which our church remembered Jesus' death and resurrection. It was just a convenient method for this celebration. I'd watched my parents take communion dozens of times before, each month when the elders passed silver platters of oyster crackers and tiny cups of grape juice down each pew. They'd eat their share discreetly before bowing in prayer. We're thanking God for sending his son to die for our sins, they whispered to my brother, my sister, and me, encouraging us to mirror their solemn posture. Our tradition allowed children to take part in communion once they could articulate its meaning. Every so often during our family prayer time on Sunday nights, we'd talk about the forgiveness of sins, about asking Jesus into our hearts, about baptism, an outward expression of inward cleansing. My parents prayed that God would prompt us to utter the words of the sinner's prayer whenever our hearts were ready. At five, I hadn't asked Jesus into my heart yet, and I'd never eaten the cracker or the juice either. But that day, the box of Jesus' body and blood beckoned. I couldn't pay attention to the sermon, my gaze bouncing between the cardboard container and the preacher on stage. 
The low lighting masked my movements, and everyone else's eyes were fixed on the pastor. So I slipped my hand through a slit at the top of the box of communion cups, and I stole a portion for myself. I peeled back the packaging, careful not to make any noise that might alert my parents to my theft, and I placed the cracker on my tongue. The salty body stung at first, before it softened inside my mouth. I feared chewing might be too loud, so I savored the taste until Jesus disintegrated on his own. Then I looked at the juice, the cup of forgiveness, and I couldn't bear to go on. Filled with guilt over the hunger, I could not control. Later that afternoon, I brought the juice container to my parents' room. Sitting on the bench at the end of their bed, I sobbed as I confessed what I'd done. I wanted to taste it, I said, but I didn't drink the juice. Do you remember why we take communion? Dad asked, kneeling in front of me. Mom sat to my right, holding my trembling hand. I nodded, then whispered, because Jesus died for our sins. Dad took the cup and looked into my eyes. Jesus loves you very much, he said, and he's proud of you for being honest with us. I smiled, my cheeks stained with tears. Can we pray together? He asked. The three of us bowed our heads and closed our eyes. Jesus, thank you for Kendall's tender heart, Dad said, for her honesty and her desire to please you. Help her know how much you love her. Amen. As we opened our eyes, he pulled the lid off the juice. Would you like to drink it? He asked. My puffy eyes grew wide before I nodded taking the cup and sipping down the syrupy sweet blood. Two more years passed before I prayed the prayer and was baptized, dunked by my dad in a baptismal pool behind the church stage. More than two decades have gone by now, but I'm still learning what that meal, the bread, the body, means. Bread is central to the story of God's work in the world. Since the dawn of agriculture, writes bread historian William Rubel, bread has served as a simultaneous blessing and curse. The labor required to plant, harvest, thresh, grind, knead, shape, and bake a loaf reflects the curse spoken over the soil in Genesis 3. At the same time, bread has served as the core of the human diet in almost all cultures throughout history. In scripture, bread functions as a sign of God's presence— the 12 loaves of showbread placed in the tabernacle in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, and the bread broken with the disciples on the path to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13 through 33. Bread also exemplifies God's provision from the manna in the desert, Exodus 16, to the miraculous multiplication of the five loaves, Mark 6, 34 through 44. It serves as a reminder of God's promise of deliverance from the oppression and brokenness of this world, the unleavened bread at Passover in Exodus 12, 1 through 28, and the bread offered by Jesus in the Last Supper in Matthew 26, 17 through 29. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have told the story of Christ's death and resurrection through the breaking of bread. While the type of bread used in communion has been contested, should it be leavened or unleavened? Must it be made of wheat? 
The belief that the element must be recognized as bread has held steady. But the significance of bread goes beyond church walls. It has also been the primary food in the diet of most humans throughout history. Bread is magnificent in both its mundane nature and its absolute necessity. At the cusp of the 20th century, new technology emerged in the United States that promised to transform the process of baking bread. For generations, bread making had been the purview of home cooks, typically women, made through unstandardized techniques passed down from generation to generation. But through the concerted effort of marketers and business owners, bread became the domain of professional bakeries that operated with scientific precision. Until that point, middle-class American consumers had been wary of bread sold in bakeries and stores, where they feared the loaves might be filled with sawdust or chalk to stretch the flour further. Whether or not these fears were warranted, they were amplified during the turn of the century, as changing racial and class demographics threatened to upset the white middle-class status quo. Thanks to a growing awareness of bacteria, and a pandemic that spread rapidly in urban areas, white consumers masked their fear of change behind a fear of contagion, a convenient shield against immigrants whom they perceived as dirty and poor. Since most bakeries were run by immigrants, many white consumers decided the only way to ensure a safe diet was to bake bread oneself at home. With the invention of industrial baking equipment, commercial bakeries were able to exponentially increase the amount of bread that could be produced in a day. Unlike homemade bread, which was subject to the whims of yeast and the weather, these commercial loaves were soft, uniform, sliced, and white. After taming the living organisms that turn flour into bread, these mechanized bakeries could produce a loaf never touched by human hands. To convince housewives to let go of the practice of making homemade bread, commercial bakers preyed on their anxieties, advertising the whiteness, cleanliness, and purity of their loaves. They sanitized wild microbes and yeasts to promise consumers a safe, clean loaf. In reality, the reactions that allow for a bleached white bread degrade the texture of dough, limit the nutritional value, and hinder the development of flavor. As scientists have discovered in the years since these mass-marketed loaves flooded our grocery aisles, this process impacts the digestibility of bread as well. This wonder bread offered uniformity and the illusion of safety while transforming consumers' expectations of what bread should be. Fears of contamination proliferated in sacramental practice as well. Until the discovery of germ theory, Christians of all traditions practiced communion using a common cup and, for many, a common loaf. Although Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant Christians clung to different convictions about how the element ought to be prepared and received, they were united in their use of a shared chalice. With increasing scientific understanding about the spread of disease came pressure for clergy to reform these liturgical norms— whether by restricting the cup to clergy alone, as Catholics had done for centuries, or by offering individual portions to church members in small plastic cups. Some pastors and congregants kept the dialogue limited to matters of hygiene, 
but others voiced their anxieties over mingling germs with those labeled as social outcasts. Physical and moral uncleanliness are inseparable, states an 1895 newspaper of the United Brethren. It continues, The first steps on the ladder of moral purity are clean faces, clean bodies, clean clothes, clean food. The diversity of the church, they believed, constituted an inherent danger, a rich opportunity for transmitting disease. Looking to defend their fears theologically, some pastors argued that communion is less about the relationship of an individual to the corporate body and more about the relationship between an individual and God. Others feared that a focus on sanitation as the mode of purity in the church would turn worshipers away from the communion of believers and create class and racial divisions within the church. The Holy Communion is ordained to symbolize the union of the believer with Christ and the union of all believers in one body, argued one of the staunchest advocates for maintaining the common cup. Nevertheless, the individualized communion practice took root in many Protestant churches. It's more important that you do it than how you do it, said Jim Johnson, the pastor who designed the pre-packaged portions of My First Communion, a century after the arguments about individual communion began. Over the latter half of the 20th century, evangelical churches continued to emphasize a shift in focus from corporate and corporal worship to that of an individual spiritual experience of God. The content of sermons and songs and their application to the Christian's life took precedence over the rhythms and liturgies that once guided communities of faith. Biblical literacy took precedence over church history, revealing a focus on individual salvation over and above communal worship. At the same time, wariness about Christian practices that connect worshipers to their bodies grew. Movements like genuflections and signs of the cross were viewed by evangelical Protestants as rituals void of spiritual value. As these practices faded, they were replaced by anxieties about how to ensure the purity of the body nutritionally and sexually. The 80s and 90s saw a proliferation of books and sermons about Christian dieting, as well as the rise of the sexual purity movement, both of which revealed an aspiration to use the body to honor God, alongside a fear of the body and its pleasure. These movements downplayed the body's physical needs and desires, and they minimized physical delight as a means of drawing into fellowship with God and with God's people. The goal was, as with the 20th century baking industry's relationship to yeast, to be free from contamination, or put more simply, to maintain control. I write this book a century after the introduction of industrialized bread altered the landscape of American baked goods in the wake of another pandemic that has changed the ways we live and eat and worship. The waves of COVID-19 continue to ebb and flow, illuminating fears and fissures within churches, families, and neighborhoods. Questions proliferate about how to care for our own bodies and the bodies of our neighbors. What is our moral responsibility to limit the spread of disease? What impact does worshiping online have on our spiritual well-being? And how do we reckon with the necessities and harms of extended isolation? 
Many adults who grew up in evangelical churches of the 80s and 90s find themselves in spiritual turmoil, grappling with the fruit of the disembodied theology of their upbringing. They are angered by the proliferation of spiritual and sexual abuse in the communities that raised them. They are grieving the absence of the fruitful marriages they were promised, if only they followed the purity rules. They are shocked over the blatant racism and sexism exhibited by the leaders who taught them to love as Jesus loved. It was in this context, when the world's collective stress was at its peak, that men and women across the United States turned to bread for peace. The spring of 2020 saw grocery store shelves emptied of flour and yeast, while Google searches for bread recipes rose to all-time highs. In seven months, King Arthur Baking Company sold twice as many five-pound bags of flour as they'd sold the entire previous year. Not to mention the consumers who purchased 50-pound bags when they couldn't find the smaller size. The feel of dough brought grounding amid the loss of community and the loss of control. God meets us in the baking and breaking of bread. In the same way, God communes with us through the broken but beautiful rhythms of the church. Despite the church's bickering and division, despite the pain it inflicts. God is present with us in tangible ways in our hunger and our loneliness, our hurts and our longings, especially in the form of bread broken and shared among God's people. In this sharing, we are taught to hunger all the more for the fullness of healing yet to come. We continue to live in the tension of bread as blessing and bread as curse. While most of us don't experience the labor of growing and harvesting wheat, wheat allergies and the fear of carbohydrates abound. But bread still offers us a way forward, a way to heal our relationship to the body of Christ and to our own bodies, and to find delight in each. A robust understanding of bread makes plain to us the reasons that poor teaching on community and the body, born of Wonder Bread theology, failed to nourish a generation of Christians well. As both a professional baker and a student of theology, I am grieved that decades of eaters, myself included, have feared bread and its ill effects on their bodies due to the reputation of industrialized loaves. Similarly, it grieves me that a generation of people who grew up in a Christian culture formed by the pursuit of sanitation and control dismiss their faith without knowledge of the tradition's rich capacity to meet them in their pain and fear. Our relationship to theology and the church can be much like Wonder Bread, cheap, industrialized, lacking nourishment and flavor. We gravitate toward Wonder Bread not because we think it's the best, but because it's convenient and affordable. Sometimes we choose it because it tastes like home, and sometimes because we have no idea there's something better. But the life of Jesus and the story of Scripture, as well as the substance of bread itself, show us there is more. One does not live by bread alone, Jesus said to the tempter in the desert but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Jesus himself is both the bread of life and the word who was with God in the beginning. 
He is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God, as well as the bread we place in our own mouths. We can know God on our tongues and in our bellies when hunger and loneliness and disappointment are too deep for words. The beauty of this communion with God can't be adequately captured in theological terms. It resists being pinned down by words at all, though story, poetry, and recipe get us closer. The very point of God meeting us in this way is to remind us that the materiality of our lives and of God's world matters. The bread of life is not just a metaphor for spiritual truth. When we bake bread and break bread, both individually and in community, we know God in a rich, creative, and intimate way. As soon as water hits flour, a series of transformations begins. Amino acids uncoil, forming bonds to create a strong, sticky dough. The journey from flour to dough to bread depends on a succession of conversions, small deaths that make way for new life. The baker's task is not to follow a proper formula to ensure an exact end result, but to read the environment, to pull the ingredients together and gently nudge the dough in the proper direction, all while trusting water and time to do most of the transforming. In this way, Bread mirrors the journey of faith. Bread, like God, is not a mystery to be mastered or solved. It is at once simple, a mix of flour, water, yeast, and salt, and infinitely complex. Thousands of years after our ancestors made their first loaf, bakers are still learning new ways to pull flavor and texture from grain. We can commit our entire lives to the rhythms of baking, of drawing out the nuances of wheat, and still have more to learn. The goal should not be mastery in and of itself, but curiosity and joy. Bread making, like faith, is a craft to hone over the course of a lifetime, a truth that is at once exciting and liberating. This book is about bread and about the bread, and about the muddled space between the two. It's the story of how God has met me in my baking and eating. As an insatiable child and a timid teen, as a world-traveling student and an underpaid pastry cook. It's the story of hunger and family, of friendship and unmet longing. It's the story of a God who meets us in both sacred and mundane ways in the mixing and kneading, in the waiting and partaking, may God also meet you. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the kitchen table. Learn more and sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at edibletheologyproject. Don't forget to order your copy of Buy Bread Alone wherever books are sold. We've even got a link for you in the show notes.